Hebrews 20, 20. We see Jesus as an act of vertical causation in the eyes of our heart. Increment 47. And the phrase I want to use again, last time I did in our spontaneous exhortation, our word of exhortation. X, that's E-X. Enos, that's E-N-O-S. Pantes, P-A-N-T-E-S. And it means all of one. All of one. Our text, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and maybe all the way through 13. And... Father, we thank you today for this opportunity. May your word travel forth as a shower of insights. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 2.10, a little bit of a modified translation reads like this. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. Every phrase in this homily is loaded. In the bringing of many sons and daughters into glory or to glory, it was fitting that God, we also know it was fitting in his sight, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation, that's the salvation of the many sons and daughters who are being brought to glory, to make the founder, that word, Archegon, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-N, is a catchword in Hebrews. It means variously founder, and I think that's the best translation of it here. Leader is another good one, sometimes even captain, captain of our salvation. It also means source, and it can have the connotation of pioneer. But here we'll call it founder. For in the beginning, in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory... It was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect or complete may even be a better rendition. Through suffering. Hebrews 2.10 begins a paragraph fresh from the homiletical midrash of Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, which included a Christological commentary of the Septuagint of Psalm 8, 5 through 7, which is 8, 4 through 6 in most English translations. That midrash culminated with Jesus being crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death which was an experience in which he tasted death or experienced death, the wages of sin for everyone. We have these all-inclusive phrases throughout this passage. Many sons and daughters, all of one, the one through whom all things exist, etc., Though Hebrews 2.9 does not mention the cross as its parallel in Philippians 2.8 does, 
Hebrews 12.2 does speak explicitly of Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame. To see Jesus as we are seeing him or being permitted to see him is an act of vertical causation in which we perceive Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, in his universally saving significance. We see the one whose death was the death of the cross, as Paul puts it emphatically in Philippians 2.8. That death of that cross is a representative, redemptive, reconciling, rectifying death with universal ramifications. Made that clear last time. Jesus' glorious coronation is the indication of his, quote, perfection through suffering. The perfection of the Son through suffering means that Jesus now appears in glory at the right of the majesty of God, not for himself. Here's the doctrine of what we call promeity. Not for himself, but for us. Hebrews 9.24, we can compare it with Romans 8.34, and also Hebrews 7.25. What he's doing there for us is interceding on our behalf in order to save us to the point of a transconfiguration of our bodily existence into bodies of glory. His glory is our destiny. Jesus' glory is our destiny. For as many as God justifies, he glorifies, says Romans 8.30. And he justifies or justified all, giving all the justification of life. Put Romans 5.18 together with Romans 8.30 sometime and enjoy the correlation explosion. Jesus, the Son of God, as he's called explicitly in Hebrews 4.14, who passed through the heavens following his death and his resurrection from the dead is crowned with glory and honor as the firstborn of many. There's that word many again, many brothers and sisters. We correlate this with Romans 8, 29. In this next section, we're picking up on a theme that was introduced back in Hebrews 1, 6 and really earlier in 1, 2. The subject, in fact, of Pastor Brian Messick's recent messages, Jesus as the firstborn. It was a motif that Brian handled with considerable skill. Jesus appears in glory as the firstborn of many sons and daughters. This becomes plain in Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, the passage we're embarking on even now. The PT has already said that all the angels of God were commanded to worship Jesus when God brought him, the firstborn, into future world. Hebrews 1.6, and we conferred there with Psalm 97.7, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 96.7. After bringing him up from the world of the dead, God the Father leads him into future world after bringing him up from the world of the dead in Hebrews 13:20 so the next four verses in our 
contemplation, 2, 10 to 13 of Hebrews, correlate remarkably with Romans 8, 29 to 32, if you want to do your own personal study. In these next four verses, we'll find that the Son's perfection through suffering means that through suffering and death, Jesus entered into a perfect solidarity with the human race and, in fact, with all of creation. This is essentially what it means that he becomes perfected. And what does it mean that the Son needed to be perfected or completed? Consequently, by his entrance into glory, after having suffered, he guarantees the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. If you're wondering what's happening in your life right now, in all the adversities and all the kinds of bizarre testing that we're going through as a nation and as a people, if you're wondering what's going on right now, I'll tell you, you're being brought, led into glory as one of Jesus' siblings. And how did he get entering into glory? It was through suffering. We should consider now, and I want to stop just for a moment, because every word of God is pure, as Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says. And every word of God is worth lighting on and considering. And I wish I had time to do that with every single word in all of Hebrews. But we're really lighting on the major insights. I'm attempting to communicate a series of insights through this exposition. But we should consider that word many in the light of Paul's use of it in the juxtaposition of Romans 5.18 and 5.19. Those two verses, I think, are, at the, are the very heart and soul of what we might call universal salvation. I know that's a very controversial term, but at this point, who cares? In his... A translation, the New Testament, David Bentley Hart's note, note S at the bottom of 298, regarding the use of the definite article in the one and the many in Romans 5.19, that note is revelatory. It's very telling. It's very explosive in its insight. First, here's David Bentley Hart's rendition or translation of Romans 519. For just as the heedlessness of the one man, for just as by the heedlessness of the one man, the many were rendered sinners, so also by the obedience of the one, the many will be rendered righteous. Now, please note the one and the many, because the one is going to refer to the sanctifier and the many to the sanctified, who are all of one. Now, in his note, and Hart's notes are remarkable, as, are, as is his commentary throughout the translation that he made of the New Testament. In his note on this verse, Hart, that's H-A-R-T, writes the following. The use of the definite article here and elsewhere must be scrupulously observed 
in keeping with the traditional way of formulating the distinction between the unique singular and the comprehensive plural, comprehensive meaning all-inclusive, in Greek, which a language without articles like Latin cannot reflect. Not, that is, one in the sense of someone and many in the sense of a mere plurality of someones, but the one in the sense of the unique and irreplaceable singular and the many in the sense of all and everyone. Please notice that. The many in the sense of all and everyone. The indivisible totality of particulars, he says. As in the prior verse, that would be Romans 5.18, the proportion uniting both halves of the formulation is that of the particular and the universal, both in sin and salvation. The point is, and I brought that in to correlate it with our Verse, the many sons and daughters being brought to glory in Hebrews 2.10. The point is that the many in Romans 5.19 is equivalent to all. It's a comprehensive term or an all-inclusive term. The all of Romans 5.18. We showed that in our study of Romans the epistle, reading Romans with the light on, that the many of Romans 5.19 can be used interchangeably and must be with all in Romans 5.18. Moreover, the one is Jesus, the sir, as I call him, as I are, single inclusive representative of all. He alone experienced death as sin's wages for everyone. Now, you'd have to work very hard not to see Jesus in his universally saving significance after taking a very good look at Romans 5, 18 and 19. The all who receive justification of life, which is a rectification that consists of receiving the very life of Christ, through the one righteous act of the one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.18 is the same as the many of Romans 5.19 who are made to be righteous by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. So now in Hebrews 2.10, we simply have many. For the sons and daughters that are being led into glory. The lack of the article in our passage, Hebrews 2.10, before the word many, does not mean that only a great number of people are being led into glory, but that all of humanity are being led into glory by the leader or the founder of salvation. Namely, Jesus. This is borne out by the previous reference to Jesus' experience of death, not for a great number of people, but for everyone. 
Hebrews 2.9. It is also borne out by a comparison of this scripture with Romans 5.18 and 19. Hebrews 2.10, CP, compared with, or I put it ICW, in connection with Romans 5.18 or 19. Furthermore, when Jesus speaks about giving his life as a ransom for many in Matthew 20, 28, and also in Mark 10, 45, you should note these verses and be very familiar with them, where Jesus speaks of offering his life as a ransom for many. The article does not appear before many. However, in 1 Timothy 2.6, where the scripture speaks of the man Christ Jesus, 2.5, giving himself as a ransom, it says he gave himself a ransom for all. Many, in Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28, 20, means all without exception of humanity, according to 1 Timothy 2.6. The scripture is a singular whole, a complete entirety. And as Jesus said, it cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken in John 10.35b. That means, among other things, it cannot contradict itself. Now, I've said before that Hebrews is not the first place that you want to go if you're making a case for universal salvation. However, nothing in Hebrews contradicts the doctrine of universal salvation that is established so fruitfully in passages like Romans 5 and throughout Romans, for example, also. Nothing in Hebrews contradicts the doctrine of universal salvation. In fact, everything in Hebrews ultimately fortifies that truth. Even though there are some hard words, harsh warnings and exhortations, words of warning in Hebrews about fiery judgment and loss So what is at stake, and we might even say what is at risk and in danger of being lost on the part of the recipients of this epistle is not salvation in the eternal state, but the state of salvation in the present world. That's what's at stake. And also what is at stake or at risk is honor and reward in future worlds. Now, here the PT introduces the ecclesiological element. We're doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews, and part of theology, a category of theology, is ecclesiology, or the study of what we call commonly the church. So here the PT introduces the ecclesiological element of Hebrews. That's the theological constituent of this homily, which deals with that which is called the church, ecclesia. And the pastor, teacher, incidentally and coincidentally, calls the church the church of the firstborn, all the way up in Hebrews 12.23. We'll get there. 
Lord willing. The perfection of the Son of God, therefore, why did he need to be perfected? The perfection of the Son of God is inextricably united with the perfection of all of humanity. One can't be perfected without the other. One can't be completed without the other. The entrance of Christ, the Son, into glory, Luke 24, 26, 1 Peter 1, 11, is inextricably, that means it can't be separated from, it is inextricably linked to the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews 2.10. Moreover, furthermore we could say, the perfection of the Son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, is the necessary penultimate, we might say second to last or second to ultimate, move. It's the penultimate move toward the ultimate eschatological goal of God being all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is the, is the ultimate goal. The penultimate step to get to that goal is Christ the Son being made perfect or being brought into a solidarity with all of creation, including and especially all of humanity. The completion of the founder of salvation is the completion of all the recipients of that salvation, which is all of humanity. Titus 2.11 is emphatic about that. Remember what we saw at the beginning of Psalm 8 and Psalm 44 in the Septuagint. That's the English Psalm 45. We have in both Psalm 8 and Psalm 44, which are dealt with by the Hebrew writer, Hebrews writer, a kind of title or introduction of topic or motif, and that is regarding completion, isotelos. Hebrews is speaking throughout regarding completion or specifically the perfection of the son in terms of his unity or union or what we like to call solidarity with human beings, with all human beings. The eternal son of God was not qualified to be sir, single inclusive representative of all of humankind until He participated in true humanity. Nor was the incarnate Son of God, having taken on flesh or assumed a human nature, nor was he then qualified to be the Sir of all of humanity until the obstacle to that solidarity was removed. That obstacle being sin, along with the fear of death that plagued the whole of the human race. The incarnate eternal son experienced both the fear of death. He shrunk away from it in horror in Gethsemane and death itself on the cross on Golgotha. Only by this incomprehensible suffering which is called the endurance of the cross by Jesus in Hebrews 12, 2, was Jesus perfected or completed. 
That is in the sense that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Only by suffering was the son perfected in union with all of humanity and therefore brought to completion in the sense that the writer is talking about. Being brought to completion means, therefore, to be brought to perfection as a priest through the age after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 2.17 to 18, we'll touch on that. And then Hebrews 5.6, 5.10, and throughout much of Hebrews from then on, the subject will be dealt with that he picks up from Psalm 110.4, LXX 109.4, and from a passage in Genesis, a brief but important one dealing with Melchizedek in Genesis 14.17 to 20. The perfection of the Son through suffering is linked to the completion of his divine mission. There are in the scriptures two divine missions. The first of two divine missions is the mission of the Son. The second is the mission of the Spirit, which is an extension of the mission of the Son. The first divine mission is linked to Jesus becoming both the offering for the purification for sin and the offerer. Not just the offering for the purification of sin, but the offerer, the priest who offers it. His perfection is associated with his consecration as great high priest. It is connected most notably to his solidarity with all of humankind. In this solidarity, he leads many sons and daughters to the same glory that he attained through his obedience to God's universally saving will. 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10 speaks of God's saving will, his universally saving will, which is also found in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. A priest, Hierus, by definition, is a single inclusive representative, a sir of a people before God. The great high priest, Jesus, is the sir of a universal people group. Jesus himself, in the days of his pre-transconfigured flesh, spoke of his own perfection or completion in Luke 13.32. He spoke of it in the future tense. He was referring to his completion both as a sin offering to take away sin and as the offerer the one who offered himself, the great high priest for his people. Thanks be to God through Jesus that Jesus who suffered such an inglorious death was gloriously exalted by the Father so that we who were once inglorious bastards, to cite the name of a recent movie, and to misspell the term bastard with B-A-S-T-E-R-D like the movie does, we who were once inglorious bastards, Hebrews 12, 8, are now the many sons and daughters whom God called into glory. God calls us into glory. 
here, Hebrews 2.10, and in 1 Peter 5.10, and in 2 Peter 1.3. And Jesus, who is the leader of our salvation, leads us into glory. The Father calls, the Son leads. Once we were not a united people, therefore, and I speak of all people, all the human race, in all of its facets and all of its wrongful distinctions that are being made today. Once we, the human race, was not a united people, but now we are the sons and the daughters of the living God. Now we are the household of God with Jesus, the great high priest, in charge. Hebrews 10.21. Now here's a question. This question arises and has arisen recently. Did God ever suffer before he became flesh in Jesus Christ? Did God ever suffer before he became flesh in Jesus Christ? Well, one Hebrew manuscript of Isaiah 63, 9a, captured correctly by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says, in all their suffering, he suffered. In all the suffering of Israel, God suffered. Now, whether or not this is the best rendition of that passage, the Septuagint of that same passage says in 63.8b to 63.9a of Isaiah, quote, he became to them salvation out of all affliction. However you read it, it is certain that a certain pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S, which means co-suffering or suffering there was a certain pathos of God with his people and with his creation and that pathos or that suffering reverberates through his holy prophets in whom God spoke in times past long ago Hebrews 1 1 and from time immemorial in Acts 3 21 When Jesus became flesh, he was, and of course still is, the self-revelation of God in the flesh. As Moltmann said, God's self-revelation is his self-dedication. So I would say God's self-revelation in his son, Hebrews 1-2, God spoke definitively in his son, is God's dedication to humanity. Jesus is God's self-dedication to humanity and to creation. During what Hebrews calls the days of his flesh, in Hebrews 5, 7, when Jesus so often felt compassion for the crowds or for individuals, men and women, or children, read Matthew 9, 36. Matthew 14, 14, 15, 32, 20, 34, Mark 1, 41, Luke 7, 13, 10, 33. Jesus felt compassion. And when he did, he was showing God's compassion on those to whom he was dedicated to help and to save. Compassion, therefore, is a kind of, by definition, macrothumia, which means long Suffering. Compassion is a kind of co-suffering. Suffering with the objects of one's love or care. 
God can be said to have suffered with his people, therefore, and with his suffering creation, even before the incarnation of the Son. But only in Jesus Christ, God made flesh, the eternal word made flesh, and then made to be sin. Only then did God suffer the consequences of the sin and the systemic sinfulness of human beings, of all human beings, comprehensively and inclusively. In order, in other words, to bear sin and its consequences away, as far as the East is from the West. This is the truth that is embodied in the suffering of Jesus by which he was perfected or brought into a solidarity with all of creation in which it is the inclusion of all of humanity in all of its times. So I would contend that God has always suffered with his creation. Even in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is said to have been moving over the surface of the waters of the abyss. There the word that is translated move or hover over has the suggestion of a kind of suffering on the part of the creative spirit who is pictured as being in the process of bringing about the completion of creation out of chaos. It's really a picture of the new creation coming forth out of a state of chaos. The Hebrew word is akin to the brooding of a hen over her young. However we look at Genesis 1-2, there is in it the suggestion of a kind of divine pathos, or suffering in the moving of the spirit like a divine wind or a divine breath over the surface of the waters of the primordial abyss. We certainly know that the Son of God and the Father and the Spirit, for that matter, suffered incomprehensibly to bring into being the new creation. Both creation and the new creation are acts of vertical causation. The suffering of God in bringing about creation and especially the new creation can be compared to the suffering of a woman in bringing forth a child, a new life. There's a reason, and this is an important Departure, although it's within our teaching here. It's a departure from the theme in one sense, but an inclusion that is extremely important. There is a reason that what is called the fruit of the Spirit is both love, agape, and long-suffering, macrothumia. It's best to maintain that original meaning of macrothumia, Long-suffering, because it portrays love in the act of enduring over a long period of time or indefinitely that which it has to endure 
to bring the objects of its love to perfection, to a complete salvation, for example, or sanctification. So there's a reason that the fruit of the Spirit is both love, agape, and long-suffering, makrothumia, in Genesis 5, or Galatians rather 5.22. In fact, Paul does his own little anatomy of love in 1 Corinthians 13.4-8, as John does in 1 John, an anatomy of love. In his anatomy of love, he says, love is long-suffering. Hey, agape, makrothumia. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 4a. That's the first thing Paul says about love in his anatomy of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love suffers with whom and what it loves. God always suffers with his suffering creation. One thing that should be grasped by people in such a time as this, the God who suffered for us and Jesus who suffered for us on Calvary suffers with us in our suffering. And that's why our sufferings are actually called a participation in the sufferings of Christ because he suffers with us. He who suffered for us suffers with us. That's a most comforting truth, a most comforting doctrine, incidentally. God always suffers with his suffering creation. But only in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, did God suffer and did the man Christ Jesus suffer in a particular way that bore away, carried away forever, all the sins and sinfulness of the world. This truth, too, is embodied in the sufferings by which the Son of God was perfected. Obviously, he was sinless, but he needed to be perfected as a sin offering, which required suffering, specifically the suffering of death, which is the wages of sin. I hope by lens after lens being dropped on the eyes of your heart, you're seeing this truth more clearly. And in seeing this truth more clearly, you see the truth that is embodied in Jesus, whom to see with the eyes of the Spirit is to see in a universally saving importance and significance. Now in John 12, 27, Jesus said to his disciples, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? He said, Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Jesus came to the hour, as it's spoken of in John, in which he was to drink the cup, not sample it, Drink the cup that the Father gave him to drink. It is the hour during which he was to taste death or experience death to the dregs for everyone. 
It was the hour during which God in Jesus Christ would suffer for the sins of the world and by suffering to remove the systemic sin and sinfulness of the whole world. John one twenty nine. It was for this that Jesus came in divine mission one. That's the reason he came. He would not be saved from that hour. For what God considered fitting, the son considered absolutely necessary. He would not be spared from that experience, from drinking the contents of that cup, every drop. God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over in behalf of us all, for us all. There's divine promeity in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Now, on July 9th, Dan Santilli, Jim and my friend, and the friend of many in Tetelestai, called my attention to the following passage. is quoted in Fleming Rutledge in her book called The Crucifixion. In my view, this paragraph shows the unique suffering of God in the suffering of the Son as Jesus endured the cross. Listen carefully to this paragraph. God himself in Jesus Christ, his son, at once true God and true man, takes the place of the condemned man. God's judgment is executed. God's law takes its course. But in such a way that what man had to suffer is suffered by this one who, as God's son, stands for all others. Such is the lordship of Jesus Christ, who stands for us before God by taking upon himself what belongs to us. In him, God makes himself liable at the point at which we are accursed and guilty and lost. He it is in his son, who in the person of this crucified man, bears on Golgotha all that ought to be laid on us. And in this way, he makes an end to the curse. God's law indeed took its course. And it culminated at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is me talking now. And it culminated at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, upon which Jesus became the curse of the law for us. Willingly. Now the curse of Adam, Genesis 3, 17 to 18, was manifested in the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. The curse of the law, Deuteronomy 21-23, Galatians 3-13, was manifested in Jesus hanging on a tree. That is the cross. Our attention is directed throughout Hebrews, away from all else to Jesus. 
the founder and completer of our faith, who instead of the joy, listen to this carefully, Hebrews 12, 2, I'm doing a rendition of it, who instead of the joy that lay before him, endured the cross, Stauron, Stauron, S-T-A-U-R-O-N, endured the cross while thinking little of the shame. That's my translation of despising the shame. While thinking little of the shame and is seated at the right hand of God's throne, Hebrews 12, 2. We're going to do, hopefully, by the grace of God, a deeper treatment of this down the road. But an interpretive question, another interpretive question. We're all over the map today a little bit. An interpretive question arises in Hebrews 12.2. Does the author mean to say here, now listen carefully, consider this carefully. Does the author mean to say that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that lay beyond it? Beyond his suffering? Or did he intend to say that Jesus endured the cross instead of remaining in heaven with its joy before him? That's a pretty good question. And in fact, it captures a whole lot of horizon. The former interpretation seems to be the correct one. That instead of the joy that was before him, or rather the because of the joy that was before him. Because of Hebrews eleven twenty five to 26, we are told that Moses chose to suffer the reproach of Christ rather to, he chose rather to suffer this reproach rather than to enjoy the fleeting but stupefying pleasures of sin that came with being the most celebrated man in all of Egypt. So in that case, instead of remaining in heaven would be a proper comparison with Moses. On the other hand, the other interpretation is possible if we compare it to Moses' respect, as it says, respect for the reward of identification with Christ. And Moses therefore chose to endure reproach with Christ's people with a view to that future reward. Hebrews eleven twenty six b to 27. So in Hebrews eleven twenty five to 27, there are two possibilities that we could consider. Was Jesus choosing the cross instead of the joy that was before him in heaven? Or was Jesus choosing to experience and endure the cross with a view to the future glory of bringing many sons to glory with him? I think they're both true. But we're asking this as an interpretive question. Yeah, what does it do? It opens our mind to wonder. And wonder is the birth of inquiry. And inquiry leads to a question for intelligence. And a question for intelligence leads to a yes, or leads to a yes or no answer, or it leads to an answer, that is. And then that leads to a question for reflection, which demands either a yes or a no. Both things are true with respect to Jesus. He endured the cross instead of enjoying the inestimable happiness of heaven that was before him, and 
he endured the cross with the expectation of what to him was even a greater joy, that of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. How many times do we experience a wonderful view of, say, a sunset over the ocean or a mountain view, and we are alone, and we wish that someone was there, we wish that loved ones were there, we wish that our spouse or our children or our parents or our family, our siblings could be there to share that joy with us. And if there was something we could do to bring that joy about, we'd do it. That's what's being talked about here. The audience of Hebrews has to be taken into consideration here. They are faced with the temporary prospect of not being accepted by the dominant culture around them. And with the positive incentive, they're also faced with the extraordinarily positive incentive of everlasting reward in future world. Instead of enjoying acceptance in the present social milieu at the expense of their bold confession of Jesus as the Son of God, the author is urging them rather to go to Christ outside the camp, outside the dominant culture, to bear his reproach and by doing so, to have unfading reward and glory in future world. What should be more important to us is not the crowd around us in this world, but the stadium of witnesses made up of heroes of faith of past generations who are rooting us on in our race for the prize. Even more important than that audience is the idea that God also is cheering us on with a view to rewarding us with glory and honor in future world. Now, we've projected ourselves forward here into Hebrews 12.2. Though this has been profitable, we'll return to Hebrews 2.10 and in Hebrews 2.11. In both of those verses, we'll find that Jesus is referred to as Archegon, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-N, which means founder or leader and sometimes carries the sense of pioneer and source. The son has been perfected through suffering and this suffering has resulted in his joy as the firstborn of many siblings. Romans 8, 29. For through his suffering, he has come into a perfect solidarity with all of humanity. Now this truth is going to become graphic, explicit, in the next few verses. In Hebrews 2.10, first, and we're going to see this, I'm going to stop in a moment. First, in Hebrews 2.10, the writer speaks of the fact that through his suffering and death, Jesus, the founder of salvation, brings many sons and daughters to glory. Second, Jesus, who is called the sanctifier, and those whom he sanctified, called the sanctified, through his suffering and death are said now 
to be all of one. And I think that means they are of one entity, a single solidarity. Third, because of this, Jesus, the Son of God, is not ashamed, and that's an understatement for the fact that, in fact, he's very proud to call these many sons and daughters his siblings, my brothers and sisters. Here they are. And that's shown by references first to Psalm, to the Psalms, in fact, the first references to the Psalms, specifically Psalm 22:22, which is LXX 21:23, and then to the prophets, specifically Isaiah 8:17 to 18 and 12:2 into 13. So we're going to see this unfold, and again, we are having answered before our eyes and in our hearing, we are having answered the question: Why did Jesus? who is perfect, have to be perfected, and why through suffering? The answer, we're experiencing it, we're learning it, and we will as we progress through this next paragraph. So, Father, we thank you that we have indeed enjoyed a shower of insights. That shower of insights has not stopped and will not stop until we are face-to-face with your Son, until we see the beatific vision. For when we see him in our glorious state, we will be like him. We thank you for the expectation and the hope of this event. When Jesus comes from heaven to institute the restoration of all things. Amen.